Hi, and welcome to our third episode of Epics for a Changing World. This week, we're going to be talking about something a little bit different. Usually we focus on a specific type of technology and we talk about its implications. This week, we're going to be talking about a specific way of thinking about all of these different problems. So we're going to be looking at a religious and specifically um, Islamic perspective on a lot of the economic challenges that technology brings. Now, Islamic moral economy, unlike Western um, traditions, isn't based on rights. It's based much more on the idea that what we have are privileges, and with those privileges come certain responsibilities. First, we're just going to discuss the climate debate at the moment um, and see how that's viewed from an Islamic perspective, just as a way to introduce some important concepts and to just understand um, how these things might be understood, not in a rights-based framework, but more in a religious framework. This gives us then a very different way of looking at a couple of the issues that we think most about when we think of with technology. So we're going to talk first about the right to privacy, which is one of the main concerns we have when it comes to Facebook and Google, etc. But that concern looks very different from an Islamic perspective, which isn't based on rights. And then we're going to look at social media more generally, whose aim is essentially to hook you on the dopamine that comes from using it, which an ethical system based on a religion, which is all about resisting temptation, has a lot to say. And finally, we're going to talk very briefly about social credit systems, which is something which, again, we tend to discuss in the West as a violation of our human right to privacy. It's the government holding a huge amount of data about us and giving us benefits and punishments on the basis of that. So we tend to regard that as a breach of the right to privacy. But this debate, again, looks very different from a non-rights-based perspective. I'm really excited to be joined today by Professor Mehmet Asute, who's a professor of Middle Eastern and Islamic political economy and finance at Durham University, as well as the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Islam Society and other publications. There's a little bit of um, interference in the sound quality in this podcast at points, but do stick with it. It's really interesting, especially later on. If you do really like the podcast, and I hope you do, then you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at Ethics Tech Pod on LinkedIn at Ethics for a Changing World podcast. Do share it with your friends or anyone you think would be interested. We're really keen that as many people hear about this as possible. With that said, on with the show. Thanks so much for joining us, Professor Asute. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your work? Okay, thank you very much, Paddy. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. So it's always... Uh, a great excitement and to be um, to talk to or to talk with uh, your generation and discuss all those matters and thank you for having me. Um, well, um, as mentioned, um, I'm Mehmet Mehmet Astai. Um, I'm professor of uh, Middle Eastern and Islamic political economy and finance. And as this title suggests, um, um, I locate myself within the larger um, discipline um, or transdisciplinarity of political economy rather than um, just the compartmentalized areas of economics and finance. That distinction is very much important for me um, to um, look at the social reality that we have around us uh, from a broader perspective, looking at how different dynamics and how individual agents, um, societies, state, um, and the other actors together constitutes a particular social formation. And within that social formation, um, how the social reality emerge. And, and therefore, um, I, I keep insisting on the importance of um, political economy, despite the fact that, um, unfortunately, all over the world, but in particular in the British universities and business schools, the political economy is not taught as, uh, as such, in, in such, a, such a manner. Um, but uh, my work, therefore, within the larger transdisciplinarity um, locates, um, I try to locate myself within that transdisciplinarity of political economy. And doing that, 
particularly looking at this uh, emergence of, uh, since 1970s, the emergence of Islamic finance. But um, important then, going beyond Islamic finance, look into um, Islamic moral economy uh, as part of the moral economic tradition within the, um, within the political economy. And look at uh, how the world, uh, within the Polanyian discourse of the world, has been changing. Um, not, of course, limited what Polanyi um, um, is related to, but beyond that, in particular, in recent years, new emergences happening, new, um, new ways of um, doing economy and business uh, has, um, has emerged. And I'm trying to understand that um, through moral economy, but importantly, and therefore my um, references to earlier to normative political economy, um, suggesting that, yes, all these emergencies, these emergencies are, are happening around us, but what is important also to remind ourselves that there has to be a benchmark, um, a broader understanding where we can locate all this. In other words, the normative understanding, what the normative understanding of economy is, society is, and how we locate human within that and how um, the, um, the challenges that we um, uh, receive from the changing economy and society uh, in relation to human well-being and the well-being of all the stakeholders, including environment, uh, land, uh, and climate. And therefore, these are uh, very much important issues for me. And when I'm doing that, my particular uh, context is Islam and Islamic ethics, uh, what I call the Islamic substantive morality, through that I try to understand. But in doing that, of course, I'm not limiting myself only to the Islamic. Um, in particular, in recent years, of course, um, um, Catholic understanding is very much important as well um, because of the liberation theory, but also how um, humanistic ethics um, uh, over the years, since 1970s in particular, pushing um, to change, change in the practices that we have. Um, and as we have recently seen, well, recently last week in um, the climate um, agenda and all those meetings took place to bring the climate to the agenda. As a result of that, humanist uh, ethics is, uh, is an important source of uh, learning for me as well to understand. So that is very much what I do um, and um, try to explore that. And therefore, when I look at the uh, performance of Islamic finance, the progress of Islamic finance, I subject to that normativeness uh, that Islamic morality um, suggests or proposes. And through that perspective, I try to understand as well what is happening around us. Hope that explains. Fantastic. That's that's a really good introduction. And it, it, um, it follows really nicely into my next question. With, within the context of we've, we've had the COP26 in the last two weeks, climate change is very much on the headlines. And that seems to be a really important issue. So I thought we could take that and use that as an example to introduce some important key concepts in Islamic ethics and how we might think about that as, a, as, a, as an issue. Uh, thank you. Indeed, um, it was an uh, exciting couple of weeks to follow uh, what is happening and what will happen uh, with the policies, hopefully, to be developed to respond to the um, climate urgency that we have around us. And, and it is something that, of course, directly affects human survival. And therefore, one way or another, a new consensus is coming up. Um, last year, I think it was springtime in 2020, um, the People's Climate Vote um, has come out, uh, published as a, as a report by UNDP, and it suggested that 64% uh, of the people uh, sampled from all over the world, 1.2 million people, and out of that 64% suggested that climate is an emergency, despite the fact that we have um, uh, COVID around us, and hence the realization of the problem. But of course, uh, um, that realization is important. On the other hand, as we have seen how officials, bankers, um, uh, politicians, and policymakers have all come together in Glasgow um, trying to um, develop certain policies. These are all exciting indeed, um, um, and seeing that that awareness is increasing. Um, however, in order to understand um, the essence of the problem, perhaps we have to at the same time ask 
Uh, yes, um, moderating the consequences um, in relation to climate and environment is important. Um, and hence, I consider this one as a moderating process. But what is important also to ask the essential question, why we have the problem? Uh, and hence, that brings us the whole issue of the initial equation. In other words, uh, if we are not going to change the way that we are producing, uh, but only changing the necessary technologies to reduce the carbon emission, unfortunately, um, our impact will continue. And therefore, the initial equation um, has to change. And that initial equation, um, based on capital and the gain of capital, the return for capital, and therefore, my fear is that on the one hand, on the one hand, I'm very happy that this consensus, this moral consensus, have, um, has emerged in relation to environment, um, climate, but beyond that, sustainable development discourse with the uh, sustainable development goals. On the other hand, my concern is that uh, this will remain a very much moderating the consequences of. Um, capitalism, rather than directly tackling uh, with the sources of the problem, that is very much the hegemony of capital. And therefore, it really bothers me uh, looking at how banks and financial institutions suddenly have become um, a, a part of this discourse, despite the fact that their governance um, system or mechanism is still based on shareholder profit maximization which suggests that um, they are just trying to find out ways of, again, um, maximizing the profits through all this green financing, all this carbon trading, and etc. Because we have immediately come to the reality that we are commodifying, again, environment, even as we have commodified carbon emission, and therefore carbon emission and carbon trading has become possible. In other words, capital is creating new opportunity spaces for itself um, to expand its profit um, and return. And, and therefore, I'm, I'm not heavily convinced, although I see um, the trend that we are in as a positive uh, moment in the right direction, um, but I'm not very much convinced on the, if I use the, uh, their own terminology, efficiency and effectiveness um, of this moment, unless uh, we question the initial question. And this is something, um, if I may refer to Christian, uh, uh, the Catholic liberation theory, would suggest that yes, we have to help uh, the poor, but what is important, why poor is poor. Um, in a similar manner, yes, we have to tackle the environmental problem and the climate issues, but why we have environmental climate problems that, that is the essential question we have to ask in order to be able to uh, provide substantial and fundamental responses to the problem rather than just moderating the consequences. And you said at the beginning um, that in your own work, you really emphasize the importance of um, moral economy. So looking at looking at the kind of ethical principles underpinning um, economics rather than just economics in a vacuum. So where do you think these ideas come from? What I see, what we are going through, it's very much related, unfortunately, the way we understand the world and how we locate the human within that world. Uh, it all goes back when I referred to the initial equation, of course, the dominance of capital, but beyond that, of course, the enlightenment, um, enlightenment philosophy and its definition of um, uh, what human is. Unfortunately, with the uh, uh, prevailing uh, philosophical base that we have around us, which, of course, shapes the nature of economics, the neoclassical economics that we have, um, it uh, one way or another based on maximization. You have to maximize as individual, as company, as institution, you have to maximize. And that maximization, unfortunately, until uh, sustainable development goals and the climate urgency did not recognize any restrictions on that. Um, in other words, uh, expropriation, one way or another, is accepted because you have to maximize. And this rationality, this maximization, unfortunately, has brought us to this level um, that you could see just 1% of the world population um, claiming uh, nearly 90% of the resources 
Um, it resulted in an um, environmental problem that we have today, and it resulted in the climate problem that we have today. In other, in other words, this maximization and definition of human as a rational individual who is expected to maximize, unfortunately, core of the problem. Of course, with altruism, we can bring certain constraints, but that becomes very much uh, uh, voluntary. And under the market condition that has been imposed on us, unfortunately, um, people have tend to people tend to um, tend to go with the maximization. Um, and in particular with the technological uh, changes and all the social media going around us, the, um, um, the initial creation of individual has been completed in the process and uh, market creates demand, the market creates individuals and that creates the necessary demand. That creates, of course, all this pressure on the resources that we have. In other words, market is pushing further individualization removing uh, any social protection, and therefore, in the end, we are all uh, subjected to market conditions and we have to accept what is given to us. Yeah, so that was that was really interesting. Um, and you mentioned the Enlightenment definition of human a lot, which is kind of um, an individual rights-bearing subject who's just maximizing utilities. And I guess we could extend that to society. So society is just a, a collection of individuals like that. Um, how else might we think about what it means to be human and society itself, especially from a Islamic ethics perspective, mm-hmm. that might that might help us reframe that in a better way? Certainly. Um, um, th- thank you for bringing um, that to the debate. I think um, when, uh, when I teach the subject matter in the class, I ask the question to students. Uh, whatever we see around us, do you think it's a right or privilege? Because this, um, to different philosophies, it will bring us to different philosophies. The Enlightenment-based understanding, which culminated into uh, capitalism that we have around us in terms of economy, um, it considers everything that you have around you is a right. And so hence, as a self-maximizing individual, it is your right to maximize um, at the expense of um, what is happening around you, at the expense of other stakeholders, for example. Uh, it's a right-based understanding. However, the religious, um, and not only religious, but um, the humanistic ethics at the same time and the philosophies around that, uh, but because um, I'm working within the Islamic ethics, uh, very much, uh, they would consider, including Islamic ethics, whatever you have around you is a privilege. So when it is a privilege, of course, it comes with a particular responsibility. Responsibility to other individuals, uh, responsibility to society, responsibility to environment at the same time. In other words, in the Islamic terminology, we have this trust concept, um, amana, the trust. Uh, whatever you have around you, including other uh, people, your own family, the society, um, environment, um, and climate, whatever you have around you, because it's a privilege, and therefore it's a trust to you. It is trusted to you. As part of that trust, therefore, by definition, you are expected to take care of them uh, and consider um, their privileges as well. That privileges requires that uh, God created everything uh, with a potential to develop, to reach their perfection. Uh, and that process is an important, what, what I call it, the becoming process. You never know you have, you have becoming uh, or you have had becoming, but it's a process. It is, it is happening. But the opportunity space has to be there. Everything and everyone has to be given that opportunity space um, to emancipate themselves, um, including environment, but at the same time to empower so that uh, whether human, uh, whether land, whether environment and climate, but everything has to sustain themselves in the way that God intended to be, to reach uh, to their perfection um, as human beings, as environment, um, as, um, as society. So therefore, uh, that distinction between right and privilege is very much important for us um, to reflect on what is happening around us today. So when we look at all these problems, including climate and environment problem, as well as poverty, is because this right-based understanding 
has prevailed um, over privilege-based understanding. And therefore, we no longer consider um, that whatever we have around us is a privilege. And therefore, we have to consider the importance of giving opportunity space to others. Of course, in recent years, with all these new discourses coming um, around us or emerging, we hear, for instance, um, uh, the diversity issues in terms of ethnic, gender, and others. So slowly, we see that expansion bringing in um, the, uh, the uh, rights of groups that have been excluded in the process. Uh, but it's a very slow process. And again, when we give... Um, when we expand this area, the opportunity spaces for others excluded, again, um, it is given as rights rather than, again, privileges. And therefore, it, it brings us into a hegemonic relationship. Some is there as a, um, as a powerful, as an hegemonic, and therefore gives these uh, rights to the others. Uh, and therefore, like this, uh, the terminology tolerance is very common nowadays. Is a terrible terminology within political economy because tolerance um, is something that um, uh, you are not happy with it, but you accept the uh, existence of it. Uh, so it gives a pow power relationship and hegemonic relationship. And so therefore, um, you are powerful. Therefore, you 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 tolerate other religions, you tolerate other ethnicities, you tolerate gender, and etc. And um, that's a terrible language. And I, I, it is because the extension of this right-based understanding rather than the privileged understanding. And, and, and therefore, again, it is, um, it is a, um, in terms of development, it is, of course, I'm pleased to see all these developments taking place, diversity, for instance. Uh, but again, it goes back to the origin of the problem, uh, whether it is privilege, again, it is right-based understanding that provides the necessary framework. And therefore, um, it has to be beyond tolerance. And when we look at from that perspective, of course, um, the importance of privilege in relation to the problems that we are having around us, and therefore, if we consider the resources that we have around us as privilege, and therefore, the whole hegemonic relationship with what we have around us, or what we own, uh, perhaps it will dissolve and therefore recognition that there is a right of others in what I have. Uh, perhaps my, um, such as the reality that we have around us today uh, as a result of colonial period, how the uh, Western world, for instance, transferred the resources, again, as a right-based understanding, um, as a result of this rational individual maximizing, as opposed to the rights of them as well, in their own places, how their resources have been ripped off. And, um, and therefore, um, the Islamic ethics, together with other religious and the philosophical ethics, but uh, um, Islamic ethics, perhaps more vocal, that is around us, um, considers that everything around you is very much the uh, privilege. Um, and, uh, and therefore, within that privilege understanding, um, recognition that everything is temporary. You do not own anything in reality. And whatever you have, therefore, there is a right for others, such as society, for instance. And because within this uh, privileged understanding, um, Islamic ethics consider that um, all the resources are created by God for everyone to have access to those resources. However, with the privatization of those resources, with the territorialization, we are excluding those people from their natural right to have access. So therefore, uh, recognizing that um, this is what happens, therefore, Quran, for instance, the Holy Book of Islam, suggests uh, a particular, um, I don't want to use the word tax, uh, but uh, what is called zakat is almsgiving, but it's a compulsory almsgiving uh, for those people who pass a certain threshold level of wealth. So that is the right of the society that has to be returned to society in order to overcome expropriation, in order to compensate those people who were excluded from the resources created by God for them as well to utilize for their well-being. However, uh, by privatizing with the territoriality, we have excluded them. So their right has to be returned to them. 
In the same manner, for instance, the Islamic ethics suggests that um, capital should not have upper hand in the society. Therefore, prohibition of interest, like in the other Abrahamic traditions as well. So the prohibition of interest is not there to instrumentalize it to do the same transactions, but without the interest. The whole idea is to reduce the power of capital to the same level with other stakeholders, therefore, and remove that hegemonic relationship. That capital should not have hegemonic relationship with the rest of stakeholders, and therefore the expropriation again can be prevented. And therefore, um, Islamic ethics considers this world of mizan, as we call it, in other words, balance. God created the world in a balance, and therefore our objective is to sustain that balance, and therefore overcome injustices in the society, uh, but um, uh, while uh, it is very much left to voluntary actions, but in order to overcome any deficiency in the voluntary action, uh, what we have, zakat, uh, almsgiving, is returning the right of society to society and reducing the power of capital to the same level with others through uh, prohibition of interest. So that this uh, sustaining the mizan, sustaining the balance um, can be possible in the, in the society. And therefore, it's very much a socializing individual. An individual has to consider, and um, those of you, uh, perhaps it's easier to explain by using utility function. Although Islam as a philosophy rejects utility, it is based on fala. In other words, individual salvation in this world and the hereafter. And therefore, your function, the fala function, the salvation function, is not only what you consume, what you gain here, of course, the uh, lawful nature of that is important, but at the same time, what happens in the hereafter, that dimension is important in terms of accountability, for instance. And therefore, that fala function or the salvation function would in include my own well-being, but the well-being of the other individuals in, the, in my own community, my family, but the community and the society, um, and as well as uh, the hereafter. And therefore, it is more complicated function than the utility function that we have, we teach in business schools. It is my um, utility function suggested, I have to maximize my utility, what I consume in relation to my budget. That's it. However, here you are talking, this socializing individual has to consider um, other people in the society and hence the hereafter, because um, understanding is that the um, the Ihsani governance, what we call, in other words, beneficent. How much beneficence you can expand in the society, that will, um, that will be an additional in your accountability in the hereafter. And therefore, this uh, sharing economy, uh, participatory and the sharing economy is the essential part of the um, Islamic ethics and Islamic moral economy. That was really interesting. That was a really interesting um kind of reframing of the problem um and there's a couple of things i'd like to pick up on um please in what you said there so you talked a little bit about um islam doesn't see things uh well all that we have around us is uh, a privilege rather than a right so if we take a quite a different kind of right which has been in the in the news very recently which is all about the right to privacy um so all about um who owns our personal data and is that facebook is that google is that us can we surrender that right when we um sign up to those platforms how would that be seen if everything's a privilege rather than a right how would that be seen differently mm -hmm. uh, thank you I, I think this this is an important debate of course the contemporary debate uh, but in terms of that privilege, in order to explain a bit more, um, it was in my mind, but I forgot. Let, let me pause that, then I'll come back to that. Um, of course, your generation, it was uh, perhaps uh, before the birth of you guys, um, there was this movie, um, Kevin Costner, Dances with the Wolves. And there, there, there was an amazing hidden message in that, a moral economy. It relates to encounter of uh, uh, white Americans with the Red Indians. Um, and, um, and there is this uh, problem of the Red Indians in terms of their survival, that's buffaloes. Uh, so um, um, 
When we look at, um, after that movie, I really looked into this, um, this an enjoyable debate in terms of moral economy, uh, to understand the nature of moral economy and what is right and privileged understanding. So for the Red Indians, Buffalo constituted an essential resource for their sustainability. However, they, their relationship with nature, in the Red Indian tradition, you have the submission to nature. Um, so therefore, their relationship with Buffalo, on the one hand, it's a resource for their um, existence and sustainability, but when they do, they slaughter a Buffalo only when they did it, and they would use every bits of that Buffalo. Okay, nothing is wasted. Everything is utilized. Uh, and those of you who have interest in moral economy, I would suggest look at the Buffalo histories. Um, uh, there is an amazing uh, moral economy there. However, when um, this American white people moves in, uh, for them, uh, Buffalo is a commodity. Okay, you can make money out of it. The more you slaughter, the more you hunt, the more money you make. And what they do, of course, they don't need the meat mostly. They, they just get the uh, leather out of it as well as the horns, and they leave the meat even on the ground after the hunting. So for, uh, for the white men, that was a commodity. Buffalo was a commodity. The more they slaughtered, the more they hung, the better they could maximize vehicles. However, for Red Indian, that was a privilege, and they could uh, just hunt when they need, and they use everything. So that distinction. However, the way, of course, um, the Americans, white Americans, killed those buffaloes, um, they entirely eradicated buffaloes. Um, so that relationship is uh, very much important for us to understand what is happening around us and therefore how commodification process um, um, is imposed by uh, market system, unfortunately. And therefore, when we go to a supermarket, for instance, we see water um, um, in um, a salt um, um, a, in bottles and it's a water and it's a human need, but unfortunately, water is a commodity now. It's, it's, it's no longer need, it's a commodity. Now, from that, therefore, coming to uh, what we have highlighted in terms of what is happening around us with technological developments in particular, of course, in recent years, social media, the heavy use of uh, what we call the fintech, uh, um, technological use um, or technological access to finance as well. Um, so whatever we do has become uh, a data around us. Um, I'm not sure whether you guys are familiar with um, Zuboff's uh, fantastic book on the age of surveillance capitalism. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, with all this uh, financial technology that we have around us, each one of us have become data. Uh, and therefore, whatever we do um, is um, part of this surveillance uh, we are uh, continuously followed up. We have become a um, generator of data. Uh, and that, of course, within the existing secular ethics, uh, but also within the Islamic ethics, is a major um, consideration. Now, when we look at the um, Islamic ethics, a particular methodological framework, what we call is the Makassad al-Sharia. In other words, what is the objective of Sharia? Uh, the objective of Sharia is defined as well-being of all the stakeholders. So whatever economic, social, political, whatever activity that we have, it has to be in the interest of all the stakeholders. Um, and therefore, the importance of this privileged understanding, how they are all linked to each other. Uh, we cannot just consider um, um, the um, economic activity just benefiting me, but other stakeholders have to gain as well in the process. And, and therefore, uh, my gain cannot be at the expense of other stakeholders. The harmony has to be established. Um, because at the end of the day, um, Islamic ethics consider that everything and everyone we have around us has a part of particular path for development, including environment and climate. So within that perspective, when we look at um, Islamic ethics would consider all this collection of data as commodification process. And commodification, of course, immediately comes with financialization. And it does not empower individual. It doesn't work in the well-being of individuals. However, of course, we have been presented some cases that you look, if we do not collect such data, 
Um, what happens? We cannot generate new medicine vaccinations as it was in the case of COVID. I think this is a very, um, very uh, innocent explanation of what is happening around us uh, because the data that are collected around us are heavily used for marketing purposes rather than the well-being of individuals. And I'm saying that in particular with the COVID, what we have seen, unfortunately, um, all the countries which have allocated very large sums of monies from their budgets and from their GDPs for war economies under the pretext of defense, um, economy, defense sector, but its reality is a war economy. But the same countries, unfortunately, have not raised the necessary monies uh, for uh, finding a vaccination uh, for the well-being of individuals. So similar attitudes could not be seen in the well-being. So when it comes to well-being of individuals and other stakeholders, um, unfortunately, we do not see that. And that well-being is an essential factor for us to understand. Um, I mean, recently, uh, I was reading an, an historical document um, to understand the moral economy um, that was applied in the Middle East, in particular the Mesopotamian area. Uh, what I see... Um, um, apparently, it was a Kurdish tradition. After the harvest, whatever harvest, uh, wheat, for instance, okay, uh, one third um, in that particular community, one third was allocated for family, uh, for their survival, one third uh, for the poor and the needy in the community, and one third was given back to earth, to the land. Um, as a um, as a as a survival in order to um, like a compost for instance uh, to 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 develop itself to start, um, to continue its um, 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 it, its survival as well um, and therefore as we can see the well-being well-being of all the stakeholders um, but this data collection that we see around us and generally market system as it is as Kovani calls it. It is disembedded. It does not relate to well-being of individuals um, in the society or the society's well-being. Then, therefore, it is disembedded. It is not based on the value system of any society. It has its own uh, logic, and therefore, it is disembedded. But beyond that, of course, the point that we have reached now, um, in particular with technology, um, um, as uh, Zuboff um, fantastically articulates in his book, the age of surveillance capitalism, it is uh, very much the marketplace um, um, through the year um, establishing the uh, behavioral futures market. And therefore, um, the what we see around us with the commodification of data, uh, we have, um, uh, as Zuboff calls, surveillance capitalists. Uh, they are increasing their wealth at the expense of larger part of the society. So we do not own that data, although it is related to us. And therefore, looking at from the Islamic ethics perspective, whatever we do has to have um, positive impact for humans and other stakeholders. Unfortunately, the way data collected, although it is our data, it is related to us. Uh, in most of the cases, we do not have access even. And therefore, and when we look at the consequence, and that's the important part, when we look at consequences, unfortunately, by looking at those consequences, we couldn't say that it is in the interest of human beings as well as the larger stakeholders. Of course, uh, we have been told that um, this is the inevitable process that we have to go. Uh, but again, um, the killing of the buffaloes was the inevitable, um, in inevitable pressure created by uh, white man's urge to gain more profit as well. That does not justify the consequence, I'm afraid. I'm really glad you mentioned um, Shojana Zuboff's um, book because it's it's really good. And I was really struck by that concept of um, futures markets as well. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, futures markets exist in finance. It's, it's essentially a, your, it's, it's an agreement to, to buy a certain amount of something at a certain period of time. Um, but what she talks about is a behavioral futures market. So you're kind of, of um, putting money in... Um, in the form of targeted advertising, for example, so that people mm -hmm. will behave a certain way in the future, um, which I found a really striking um, concept. Um, do you think there's any weight? Be because some people would say, well, Facebook is using that data to 
give targeted ads um, which are more relevant to people um, and that in general these social media companies are giving people uh, they're using it to give people more of what they want. So YouTube is a good example of that. It, it allows them to, to give you the specific entertainment that you want or, or Netflix or Spotify is a similar concept. Um, do you think there's there's any any weight to that argument? Um, indeed, uh, this is what we teach anyway in the first year economics textbooks. Uh, uh, we tell students that... Uh, uh, the consumers, of course, uh, their demand will determine the outcome. And we start with the demand and supply function, and we say that uh, when they intersect, um, that, that is established, okay? And therefore, we suggest that uh, customers, one way or another, has a saying in this. I wish the world was that innocent. Um, I wish that was a reality. Uh, what we have been offered around us is very much, again, uh, Zubov's type of analysis, Market machine is working because it has its own logic. In order for its survival, it has to generate continuously. And in order to make money, therefore, in order to maximize the profit in the end, um, everything can, has to be instrumentalized. Everything has to be commodified in the process. And in this, uh, rather than that innocent explanation of uh, supply or customers determining, unfortunately, we do not have any say. Uh, market first uh, forces us to be individualized entirely. With the processes, as we have seen, with the increased technology, we are further individualized, uh, not only methodologically, but the lifestyle as well. Uh, because when we are further individualized, when there is that society, the protectiveness is, not, um, is no longer around, uh, we become an easy target. Easy target uh, to compel um, to express our demand for the things that we have around us. It becomes much easier uh, for, um, uh, for alienated individual um, to, be, uh, to, uh, to be able to, or to be vulnerable to the market conditions. Um, and therefore, uh, increased demand is very much pushed by the market rather than there's a real, uh, real need for that. So whatever market pushes onto us, uh, we try to buy, is not because we need it, it's because we want to. So the distinction between the need and the want. Okay? Uh, so we, we, we are now in the want world, um, everything that we want to want. But the distinction again is what resources you have in order to be able to um, um, get all these things that you want to, um, you want to have. And for that, immediately, financial system comes. The easy credit, as a credit, all these credit cards, easy credit that we have around us. And, and all this um, social media, uh, unfortunately, around us, rather than being a communicator of the individual um, to the suppliers, they are compelling us to uh, the supply, what to buy, what to choose, and what to have. In other words, as you mentioned earlier, our behaviors, our behavioral future market has been established and it is beyond us and therefore market is producing um, certain goods and services for us um, that we feel that we are compelled to have them. Because if we don't have it, this all, all this idea of conspicuous consumption, if we don't have it, then the whole inferiority issue unfortunately prevails. And that's very common. I mean, in a research, for instance, it shows microfinance is an amazing story uh, for the empowerment of the poor. Uh, but in quite a number of places, uh, people have been borrowing monies for microfinance, and then they go and buy iPhone uh, because they want to have it rather than they need it. They need survival, but they want to have iPhone. And therefore, um, in, in certain um, a very large number of projects, unfortunately, um, in microfinance, um, they have not resulted in empowering individuals. Um, instead, um, they create this dependence, dependence on the market condition. So our everydayness is very much um, um, in relation to that dependence. The market is hegemony, and market therefore uses our data to establish those uh, behavioral features market. Then they produce all those goods and services, and we feel that we are compelled uh, to buy them. And that creates, of course, the huge, um, huge uh, tension on the available resources around us. 
And therefore, unfortunately, climate is now saying that, look, I cannot continue. And therefore, we see all these climate problems, environmental problems, um, and also um, increasing poverty around the world because resource allocation works in the favor of those behavioral future markets who, who can afford to buy. And therefore, I, I think um, the, this innocent explanation that um, um, social media as well as the emerging technology is serving um, indi individual uh, expectations, unfortunately, those expectations and those ones are created uh, by the technology itself. And therefore, we are within this ethical dilemma uh, whether um, accept or not. In the same way, however, we do not look at the consequences. We only look at the process, but the consequences are important for us to consider. What uh, consequences that we are producing to our economic, social, and political choices. And that has to be taken into account. And therefore, the importance of this uh, maximization attitude has to look at what consequences it has produced, such as the environment, for instance. Um, and these are important considerations for us um, to, to look into. Um, I'm really glad you mentioned that point about um, the our, our dependence, so the dependence of individuals on the market. Um, so within Islam and, and other religions as well, there's this really important concept of kind of uh, resisting temptation, liberating yourself from um, simple the simple pleasures and temptations of life um, and focusing on bigger things. But in the present context, we have a lot of social media companies whose products are essentially designed to be very difficult for that. It's very difficult to resist. Um, they're designed to hook you on, on dopamine and they're based on clever understandings of, of our psychology. Um, how, how, would, how would you view that? Um, yes, indeed. Um, indeed, it is um, it's a um, difficult process. Uh, I think it was in the 1990s, um, I read a book on, um, I don't remember the author, but it was something on, um, on the survival of religion in the postmodern times. Uh, and that brings all this behavioral problem uh, and be behavioral challenges uh, for religious communities in particular. Uh, but these are not the problems of only religious communities, but everyone is being affected by the domination, domination of market um, that is prevailing around us. And therefore, the importance of um, behavioral issues, uh, because at the end of the day, whether religions, uh, including secular ethics, one way or another, everyone refers to similar positive consequences. Whatever we do, it has to produce some positive outcomes in the process, some goodness. Uh, but of course, the way we define those goodnesses and the processes we define um, can be different. Uh, and therefore, um, the behaviors, um, at the end of the day, um, behaviors matters. And, and religious traditions, including Islamic ethics, aims at uh, um, uh, very much shaping the behavior. Uh, of course, the temptation is there, but the um, behavior. Uh, when we look at religions, including Islam, uh, institutions are not necessarily mentioned. In Islam, mainly two institutions, almsgiving zakat, the other one is uh, prohibition of interest. But beyond that, um, everything is very much left the individual behavior, developing this individual behavior. Um, however, there is this heavy uh, references to uh, the, the connectivity, the socialization process with the larger society, so that uh, as, um, uh, creating this um, moral economic context, the social formation. One of the issues we understand from Polanyi when he talks about the disembeddedness that resulted because of the emergence of market is, is very much the collapse of that social formation, the protective environment, the solidarity, and the sharing part. So when that collapsed, because market wanted to gain, to make individuals, create the individuals so that they can be vulnerable to your forces. Um, I think that played an important role. And in a similar manner, um, um, unfortunately, um, because of the, um, um, the whole idea of the modernist understanding, um, uh, when it was imposed, and it has been imposed uh, for many centuries now, the whole objective was that the entire world will converge towards um, the modernist position, the convergence towards modernization and the modernist 
consequences. That, of course, included shaping individual, reshaping individual, reshaping their behavior. And therefore, the maximizing individual, um, one way or another, has been imposed um, on the rest of the world as well, in communities and societies uh, who were terribly alien. And we understand from Polanyi even that was alien um, in, the, um, in the Western part of the world. Uh, but it, it has been imposed. And then uh, we are told that this is an inevitability. That's the reality. We are told that economics and finance is value-free. Um, so wherever you go, is economics is economics. That's not necessarily the case. Um, and the people's, uh, people's values, uh, people's articulation of those values, um, and, and the resultant behavior is an important consequence. And therefore, Islamic ethics also uh, considers, um, with all these references to justice, with all these references to trust issue, with these references to privileges, uh, with all these um, references to ihsan, in other words, beneficence, equilibrium-oriented society, and etc., aims uh, to constitute a particular um, social formation through the behaviors of individuals and how those behaviors are important to be substantiated. Therefore, the importance of social accountability in the hereafter or the hereafter accountability in addition to social accountability that we have around us. However, uh, with all these technologies, uh, first the modernization, of course the colonialization, and then with all these technologies, um, the individual power, the temptation, the market, as you mentioned. Um, of course, these are uh, very much important challenges uh, for Islamic ethics as well as any other ethical uh, traditions, uh, all the traditions that we have. And uh, how, therefore, what we have seen um, within the Islamic ethics, within the Islamic moral economy, we were hoping that the emergence of Islamic finance would work within the uh, parameters of Islamic morality and Islamic ethics. But what we have ended up, how Islamic morality is instrumentalized again for capital gains. And therefore, um, it was also the same thing, the same thing we have recently witnessed uh, with the um, Catholic Church as well. Uh, because uh, Pope Francis has amazing discourse. Um, our, our common home is an amazing discourse to look into. Regardless of your religious affiliations, I would suggest everyone to read that, um, religious or non-religious affiliation. Um, and amazing, amazing story. Um, same thing with the Islamic ethics, um, very um, articulated. Uh, but unfortunately, last December, um, church come up with the project of inclusive capitalism. Uh, again, uh, the outcome, okay, inclusiveness important and therefore capitalism but the initial equation is the problematic part and i think when i read uh, pope francis um, in the our common common home what i understand the initial equation is problem but unfortunately the end result has been inclusive capitalism in the same way unfortunately despite all this ethical discourse the market conditions have grafted islamic finance to produce similar outcomes because it works, unfortunately, within uh, within shareholder-based understanding in the same way. Uh, so therefore, is these two cases, uh, the Catholic cases and the Islamic cases with Islamic finance and the inclusive capitalism with the Catholic cases, is an important um, lesson for us to understand how market conditions are so dominant, they only allow you, despite all this diversity and plurality discourse, it only allows you if you fit into the straitjacket imposed by capitalism uh, to be able to exist, to be able to operate. And therefore, um, Islamic finance slowly uh, went into, again, an appreciation of capital rather than the, the whole idea of producing social good, uh, because that's the essential, as I mentioned, Makassar Sharia, the objective of Sharia, whatever you produce has to be in the interest of the um, um, of the uh, public as well as the um, other uh, stakeholders such as environment. Uh, but it is moving into very much into the, um, into the capital, the appreciation of capital, and unfortunately the same thing happened with um, um, sorry, the Catholic uh, discourse of inclusive capitalism. And the market temptation, therefore, for individuals, for institutions within the realm is very much um, hegemonic, very much determining and, and compelling that we have to be the and therefore, the importance of, in particular, your generation, uh, I believe, into your generation, 
will make a difference, whatever the ethical base um, of you guys, each one of us have different ethical base. But at the end of the day, in terms of consequences, we all have the same ideals um, to ensure the well-being of all the stakeholders. And therefore, the awareness, the importance of awareness on the issues, rather than taking the operation of the market, capitalism, um, the social life, uh, technology, um, just a face value. Uh, there is something beyond those face values, and we have to be aware of those values, and we have to create the necessary awareness of those face values um, um, uh, so that we can, we can create the necessary historical block to challenge that. Um, otherwise, unfortunately, we will be part of that mission and we will be consumed in the process. And therefore, I think your generation will make a difference as well in terms of pushing um, ethical related debates uh, within the classes and uh, perhaps forcing the um, schools and the faculties and the departments that you guys are studying to bring an uh, ethical debate into the curriculum, um, the colonizing debate into curriculum. And these are essential factors for us to consider in order to be able to make a difference hopefully. That's really interesting. Um, and I'll just, just want to ask you one more question, if I may. Um, Please. So you've, you've talked a lot about society and benefiting all the stakeholders in society. Um, and there's one model in particular which is being tried um, in China, which um, is very unpopular in the West as a concept, which is a social credit system. So when your bank decides whether to give you a loan or anything like that, it's not just based on whether you've defaulted on your loans before. It's based on whether you're a good citizen based on various measures. It's based on lots of different types of data which they have about you. You might have had points docked for um, doing something bad and you might have had points added for... If you find a wallet on the ground, then you might have handed that in and you would have got points for, for good behavior. Um, and you could get cheap rent for that or you could get um, various kind of benefits. Whereas if you have a very low point score in some parts of China, you can't buy high-speed train tickets. Do you think... How, how do you think that works in terms of whether it benefits all stakeholders? Because it's, it's not something we ever discuss seriously in the West because it just just goes against our idea of, of personal privacy. It's the government having huge amounts of data about people which which terrifies us. But what what do you think of it as as a as an idea in terms of whether it benefits all stakeholders? I think social um, social credit um, is is an important uh, narrative for us to consider wherever we are in the world in, in the face of the um, economic um, and the financial difficulties that every one of us going through. Um, in other words, uh, the whole dependence created by the financial system on true borrowing, uh, one way that has to be eased. And therefore, social credit is an important part of Islamic ethics, for instance. Uh, one of the categories of financing uh, within Islamic ethics is called Qadr Hassan. In other words, um, good giving, good loan. Uh, which implies that um, you give people the loan because they need it and uh, that you do not expect any return on that, additional return on that. And if they can manage, um, they, they, they are expected to pay back if they can manage. Um, however, it has to be good loan and no return. Uh, and to that extent, Ivan Quran mentions that um, if you have to lend money, let it be charity. Uh, rather than uh, rather than a borrowing, because the whole objective is to prevent that uh, dependency. Uh, capital creates dependency. However, emancipation and giving up, as you mentioned earlier, is an important part. Um, because like other traditions, Islamic tradition consider giving up as an essential part of human emancipation. And therefore, when we look at all the worshippings within Islam as well, it relates to giving up, for instance, the daily prayers, giving up of your time, and, and uh, paying almsgiving, giving up from your money, um, going to pilgrimage, giving up from your time as well as from your money, 
Um, so as we, as we can see, all giving up process um, in order to be able to emancipate. This is, of course, uh, um, available in other traditions, religious traditions as well, but also secular tradition through the altruistic behavior. Uh, the amount of um, whatever we give up, um, we consider that it increases the quality of that person in order to be, and therefore the importance of socializing. And now, therefore, um, the social credit is very much important. And when we look at the Islamic finance story in 1963, uh, the first experiment is social credit banking. Uh, an amazing story which empowered the people around, um, around that community in Egypt and therefore the fear by the political process um, because the social credit went to small um, artisans, uh, very small businesses, and um, it was empowering. Therefore, the regime of the time very much threatened with the success of that, and therefore they stopped, unfortunately, that particular uh, Islamic banking experiment based on social credit. Now, social credit, therefore, is an amazing story, and I hope and pray that we can develop uh, credit units, if I'm not mistaken, um, as part of one of the projects of uh, Church of England, for instance, um, is again uh, something that we have to appreciate, uh, whatever the sources. But of course, um, um, making that depending on certain condition um, is fearsome, not only in terms of data, but in terms of uh, political and social uh, security of individuals. Uh, because um, we, are, we, are, we are living in democracy in the western part of the world, but the quality of democracy has, um, has been challenged even in the Western world, as, as we have seen. It is no longer like 1980s uh, freedoms of democracies that we are talking. Uh, it is very much challenged, even democracy in the West even challenged. And therefore, uh, subjecting that or putting as a condition of individual performance in the social life, if I use the performance, um, I think it is very uh, fearsome. Um, not only because of data, but the discrimination that it will create at the same time. And also, uh, the, at the end of the day, each state uh, wants to shape individuals in a particular way. Uh, what Benedict Anderson called is the, um, the imaginary societies, creating these imagined individuals, imagined societies. And I think um, uh, it will work very much in the interest of creating that imaginary individuals and um, societies, and it will be terribly against human um, human rights and freedoms. Uh, and it is not a simple, um, I think, citizenship performance, but it goes beyond that of entirely controlling an um, individual. Uh, and therefore, um, I would oppose on any ground of um, such a structure, such a mechanism. Um, and um, I would challenge that um, 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 uh, within my uh, within my discourse. Um, and I think it has to be avoided. And unfortunately, when social credit is associated with such a mechanism, it undermines the whole uh, whole principle of how we can use finance with a social outcome to produce a good out of that. Um, unfortunately, in particular, in countries such as China, where political contestation um, is an issue um, in many countries, so not only China, but in many countries all over the world, um, I think that would be a very dangerous process in terms of human rights and freedoms. Um, and um, I would vehemently oppose that. That's really interesting. And that's, that's a really, really interesting distinction to draw between different types of social capital and the kind of political mechanism that exists around it. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Professor. It's been a really interesting discussion. No, thank you for having me. Um, hope we can meet uh, in other platforms, but carry on with the good work uh, because uh, I believe that it is your generation who will make a difference hopefully in the world that we live for a better world. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me.